0: Namaste. This morning I, um, I felt quite moved at breakfast just looking at you, <laughs> um, doing your work, um, being here and something that happens on a, a silent retreat which took me a while to get used to when I first started leading them was that over time in a way people's faces look less and less full of expression there's a kind of inwardness that that starts to happen and when i first started to lead retreats it used to freak me out a bit it was huh, what's going on do they like me um, <laughs> but but it's it's now it's it's part of the journey of of the retreat that we we kind of sink more deeply into the silence and sink more deeply into the ground, and this, the second and third days of a retreat, um, maybe you're sensing that, that you're, you feel like you've come, you've sunk another level um, into another layer of silence. Sometimes it can also be a difficult time in the retreat, if there's something that you're wrestling with, or something that's coming up for you, and sometimes the difficulty might be the sense that nothing much is happening or that you don't feel that anything <laughs> much is going on. However it is for you today, I, I just like to encourage you to keep being where you are. God meets us where we are, even if that feels like an unpromising place, just to encourage you to keep being here. And keep giving your yes to whatever it is that is being wrought in you over this time. And that is the gift of this time um, for you and for all of us. So I honour you for putting yourself in this place and for being here. Yesterday, I suggested that when we think about uh, meditation and the active life, we can think about it in three dimensions or consider three aspects of their relationship. And these aspects are, of course, interconnected, interrelated. (coughs) But one of the aspects is to do with the agent, the person who's doing the action. How does meditation affect our way of being and so our capacity to act, for example, with less attachment, or less anxiously, less self-centredly? The second aspect is to do with the field of action, the, the fundamental context of our lives and how contemplation leads us to an experience of faith that is a sense of our fundamental context as gracious and hopeful our lives held in the embrace of God if you like. And the third aspect of the relationship between contemplation and the active life is to do with particular acts or deeds. What forms does action take when it's sourced in this contemplative practice and faith? Well, so far as you know, we've focused on the first and second dimensions, the person of the actor and the fundamental context for our action. Today and tomorrow, I want to spend a bit of time looking at forms of action that become possible for and are called forth from contemplative persons and communities. So, in other words, what are we going to do now? Well, there are, of course, many things we could say about the conduct of lives that flow from contemplative practice and faith. St. Paul spoke of the fruit of the Spirit as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And these describe the character or quality of contemplative action. And as for the kinds of acts, characteristic of converted and faithful lives, well, we see from the book of the Acts... Isn't, isn't that interesting? I never really noticed before. It's the book of the Acts of the Apostles. We're on target, people. <laughs> um, we, we see from the book of the Acts of the Apostles that a vital connection with the life of God leads to the capacity to act in Jesus' own way. And this includes things like telling the truth courageously, generosity of spirit, hospitality, and a commitment to the work of healing and reconciliation. And all of this is pretty well known to us however much we struggle at times to actually act (laughs) in these ways, we kind of know that's the basic um, shape of things. But what I'd like to focus on are two features of contemplative action or engagement that are less discussed and that I think our world is in particular need of. And they are discernment, and intercession. And today, I'll say something about the first of these, discernment. Let me start by sharing an experience I had almost three years ago. It was early 2014. I attended the meeting of the UN Commission on the Status of Women in New York. I was part of the Anglican Communion delegation to this meeting. Thousands of people were there. They were representing governments and international agencies, civil society and NGOs. And the Anglican Communion delegation and there was a Catholic delegation and were all part of the civil society component of this. Well, hearing about the range and extent of gender-related injustice was overwhelming. Um, as any of you will know who've been to those kinds of things, there was a particularly harrowing uh, session on trafficking, I remember, and you know many other uh, overwhelming um, things. What was also overwhelming was the frenetic activity at the event itself. It had hundreds of parallel sessions, policy discussions and meetings of legal drafting groups. At one point our Anglican delegation was addressed by a high-level official from the Anglican Church in the US called the the Episcopalian Church and this high-level official commended us all for our activity and urged us not to give up but to keep agitating. Well, these words made me uneasy. I was already troubled by aspects of the meeting, the sense of frenzy, the robust, egoic identity many activists appeared to be deriving from their work, the vast amount of energy being expended for what seemed little real progress. I began to reflect that in the discernment of spirits, agitation is often a sign of the false spirit. And I wondered if, at least in part, rather than all of us needing to keep agitating, it was our very agitation that was operating as a block, giving us the illusion of doing something while actually avoiding what was truly necessary. And what might that be? Perhaps a willingness to stop for a while, to risk being fully present, both to the depth of the world's need and our experience of impotence in the face of it perhaps a willingness to undergo the distress of that rather than rushing ever more agitatedly around with more supposed solutions and lots of joint statements. And I reflected that just as in pastoral care when we're faced with the suffering of another person we can so easily bustle in to fix it primarily concerned to lessen our own anxiety and discomfort, if the truth be told, so in social action we can end up embroiled in the same dynamic. I don't want to be misunderstood here. I'm not saying we do nothing in situations of injustice and suffering and simply kind of lie back and wait for God to do it for us. As Rowan Williams has said, this is not at all to argue that so-called internal transformation is more important than action for justice. But he goes on, it is to insist that the clarity and energy we need for doing justice requires us to make space for the truth for God's reality to come through. Otherwise, our search for justice or for peace becomes another exercise of human will undermined by human self-deception. And this is where discernment comes in. Discernment is precisely about making space for the truth, for God's reality to come through. It's a practice that helps us to act not simply out of our own force of will or opinion or compulsion to do something, anything, but out of responsiveness to God's reality and call. So let me say a bit more about what discernment is and its connection to meditation and the active life. The word discernment comes from the Latin, dis, meaning apart, and cernere, to distinguish or sift. Discernment is to do with the quality of our perception and understanding of things. A common phrase is a discerning critic. Someone who can kind of really, you know, sift apart quality from not quality or or get in touch with what's really going on in a situation it involves paying real attention to what's there including to what is perhaps beneath the surface, perhaps just beyond our immediate awareness, so it's a a depth perception of what's there, and it's to do with our attunement to what might yet be, our capacity to sense the currents of life, if you like, and the possibilities awaiting fuller expression or realisation. So discernment is deep listening, you might say, which is a kind of a listening both for what is there already and for what might be. It's kind of present and future. The capacity to discern in any depth, to listen in this deep way is significantly affected by our willingness to give our attention and be open to what is not me. It's a, I have to actually get my attention out of myself towards the other. Someone uh, spoke sometimes about the the shift in attention between centra, I always get this wrong, centripetal which is inward and centrifugal which is kind of looking out. And this can involve then being with complexity and uncertainty. And allowing rather than avoiding the discomforting thoughts and feelings that can accompany being with uncertainty and complexity and not being quite sure yet what it is that we're looking at or attending to. Mature discernment is an aspect of wisdom and wisdom, the philosopher Raymond Gater has said, is the fruit of a life It's never just an intellectual, cognitive thing. It's a matter of the whole person, heart, mind, body, and spirit. And it's the gift of a life that is becoming ever more whole, that is integrated, reconciled, and given over to the love of truth. You have to want to see it. One of my favourite stories of discernment is in John's Gospel, Jesus' response to the woman caught in adultery. You might remember that in this story, the scribes and Pharisees bring a woman to Jesus who has been caught, so they say, in the very act of committing adultery. To them, she's a living instance of impurity and scandal, sin. And she's thus an ideal case by which they can put his orthodoxy to the test. Ha ha As they say, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And the Gospel writer continues, they said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. It seems to me that this story helps illustrate what's at stake in the work of discernment. Notice first that despite the fact the scribes and Pharisees have made this woman stand before all of them, The text explicitly makes that point. They made her stand before all of them thus exposing and shaming her. Despite the fact that they do that she has actually disappeared from their sight. She has become one of a class. Moses commanded us to stone such women and her story pressures and ambiguities and complexity of her particular life (coughs) are invisible. They're completely erased. (coughs) And notice also that as they do this to her so they forget the pressures, ambiguities and complexity of their own lives. They're so focused on their agenda on entrapping Jesus and on being outraged at the woman's supposed sin. That they have forgotten their own less than perfect (coughs) obedience to God. They are convinced of their own righteousness, yet they are actually self-deceived. And it's coming out in a particularly nasty form of scapegoating. Well, Jesus sees what's going on, the whole of it. He simultaneously knows it's a trap set for him. He remembers the woman. And he sees the scribes and Pharisees too, both their self-diminishment and the possibility of their fuller life in God. And in the midst of of all this complexity and all the cross currents, he discerns a response that opens up a new kind of space and the possibility of self-knowledge and true relationship between them all. Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. See how it shifts, it opens up a space where there wasn't space before. It's an extraordinary example of someone, in these words of Rowan Williams, making space for the truth, for God's reality to come through. Now, Jesus is Jesus. And a response exemplifying this kind of deep insight and wisdom might seem a long way from what's possible for us. Often enough, we struggle, I certainly struggle, to see holistically or to know how to create this kind of space for God to come through in the dynamics of my own family, let alone in the intractable problems of our communities and workplaces and the wider world. Often I feel my responsiveness seriously inadequate to the reality that faces me. I know I don't see it whole. And I struggle then to be attuned to the deeper currents of God's reconciling presence. And so to to know what would be needed to help to realise that, to kind of let that out a bit more. Nevertheless, Thomas Merton once wrote of the contemplative vocation that we are to live as listeners. It's a poem and the line is, um, living as listeners at the far end of solitude. Isn't that beautiful? We are to live as listeners. And this, I think, is the essence of discernment. We are committed to grow in our capacity to listen for God's way, God's will, in whatever situation we find ourselves. And we're seeking to be obedient which you might have heard Father Lawrence say, is not doing what you're told, but becoming the word you hear. Obedience isn't doing what you're told, it's becoming the word you hear. So it's a kind of radical responsiveness. And in this way, we do participate in this fundamental movement of God towards reconciliation, towards fulfilment, towards realisation and this is the life of faith. So in our action we're not just trying to keep the peace, we're not just trying to look good We're not even trying to do good or to save the world on our terms. We're learning to discern where God is, what God is doing, and how we are called to join in. We already know that meditation helps deepen our capacity to discern. In my opening talk, I spoke of how the practice of meditation gradually heals and integrates us. It allows us to acknowledge and be reconciled to ourselves, including, as I said yesterday, those parts of ourselves we find difficult or painful or wish weren't there. And the more this happens, the less our vision and response are clouded or distorted by our hurt or fear or anxiety about our own inadequacy or tendency to want to dominate or remain undisturbed. And as a consequence we become more able to see and be with things as they are in themselves as God sees and is with them. And this is a necessary first step. A Protestant theologian was killed by the Nazis just at the end of the war, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, the transformation of the knower is the decisive and clear prerequisite of coming to share the mind of Christ. But this doesn't mean that one day, if only we're sufficiently transformed, we will just know the truth of everything. It doesn't mean there'll be no more struggle or vulnerability or doubt about what we should do and say for the best. Bonhoeffer insists that while truthful discernment is sourced in our relationship to God, this never makes the work of discernment redundant. And even Jesus needs, seems to have needed to think about his response. When the scribes and Pharisees put their question, he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. He took his time. So discernment is a work, a work of paying attention, questioning, reflecting, considering alternative perspectives and ways of seeing something, being mindful both of possibilities and of likely consequences. Bonhoeffer warns that under no circumstances are we to rely on what he calls unmediated inspirations and what I call being zapped by the Holy Spirit (laughs) or having the sense that we have been (laughs) zapped and therefore it's that way. (laughs) That can happen but it can also lead to self-deception so that you know the whole range the work needs to be done. Bonhoeffer says, a sober and watchful attitude should prevail. Conversation in community is essential, as is the use of our critical, imaginative and intuitive faculties. In short, Bonhoeffer says, in order to discern what the will of God may be, the entire array of human abilities will be employed. And This this means also that practising discernment requires a strong dose of what the poet Keats called negative capability. That is the capacity to be with uncertainty and unresolvedness. And here too meditation is an important discipline. As we get used to giving up our agenda and expectations in prayer we deepen our capacity to dwell in the place of unknowing. We're more able to suspend premature interpretation, judgment and resolution and in this space the reality and call of another person a situation, a life task may begin to reveal itself more clearly. Because usually it does take time for truth to become evident, or at least for us to recognise it. It takes time for the direction of our lives or the shape of a life-giving response to come clear. The ancient Greeks had two words for time, chronos and kairos. Chronos refers to chronological or sequential time, (coughs) clock time. It's the kind of timetable time by which we so often demand things happen. Kairos time is different. It's about the right or opportune time. When the fullness of time was come, Paul wrote, God sent his son. Discernment is connected to Kairos time. And there is need to let wisdom ripen. How do we know when we've discerned rightly? In my experience, we're never guaranteed of our rightness, (coughs) let alone our righteousness. Despite our best efforts, it remains always possible that we do not discern as deeply or truthfully as we might, and that we are deceived or obtuse to some degree. A commitment to discernment means we remain vulnerable to being wrong. And in this sense, it both presupposes and leads us deeper into the life of faith, trusting in grace, that we don't have to always be right. And yet there are certain signs, I think, that accompany truthful, or at least more truthful, discernment. (laughs) And these are signs that are consistent with the presence of God. Is there a sense of a fuller truth, a fuller spaciousness and possibility of vitality and hopefulness? Or does it still all feel a bit agitated and clutchy and panicky? Is there a sense that you can do no other except on pain of infidelity? Even when the way ahead looks dark and the outcome uncertain? Where these signs are present, we can trust we are truly on the way. We live, I think, in highly opinionated and reactive times. In a culture that often exhibits arrogant certainty, impatience with waiting, and with the vulnerability of real listening. Debate, rather than conversation, dominates our public life. And debate is about winning and losing, listening for weakness and exploiting it, rather than listening for understanding, mutual conversion and responsiveness to God's truth. Likewise, in many of our institutions and organisations, the demand for instant results, readily measurable outcomes and manageable key performance indicators, (laughs) all of them militate against listening for and risking ourselves in the kind of action that would respond more truly and courageously to our world's ills. In such times, the committed practice of discernment is profoundly countercultural. And yet, it seems to me that if we are to act in our families, communities, businesses, and nations truly responsive to the truth of things, to the will of God, then it is this capacity for discernment above all that we need to strengthen and learn how to practice. And I think this is a gift that contemplative people and contemplative communities must model and make available. So today, I invite you to reflect on what this invitation to practice discernment might mean in your life. Perhaps you have come on retreat with a particular question, a wondering about a choice you're facing, or about how to respond to dynamics in your family, or your workplace, or your church. Or perhaps it's a more inchoate wondering about how you're being called to participate in God's ministry of reconciliation in this season of your life? What contribution for the life of the world is asked of you at this time, given your particular circumstances and gifts? Take your time. Don't clutch at a resolution Open your heart, give your questions to God, and let yourself be led more deeply into Christ like discernment and responsiveness, so that you and all of us may be blessed.